Survival House Network. Attention humans, I am Cryptosporidium of the planet Huron. This planet is now a territory of the Furon Empire. Resist this! the first episode of The Game Slice. I'm Will. And I'm Matt. And if you're looking for a breakdown of what's happening in the game industry, or for funny yet insightful discussions on the latest releases or the classics, you've come to the right place. Matt, how would you summarize your taste in gaming? All over the place. Do tell. Do tell. Explain a little bit more to the audience. I used to be, like, super into FPS games to the point that I was about all I ever played. But that was, like, years and years ago. Now I kind of just play whatever I feel like. I'm not the biggest guy on like turn-based RPGs. It's probably the one genre I'll say I don't play a ton of. N- mostly just because they're all really long. And it's more of a time commitment thing rather than not liking the way it works. Because I like Fire Emblem. Which is about the only turn-based RPG games I've ever played. Although I've played a little bit of Shin Megami Tensei. Recently I've been playing a ton of platformers. Especially Metroidvanias. And some other games, like, I play a lot, a lot of Splatoon and Skullgirls. I like fighting games, and Skullgirls is the one I have the most time in. I would describe myself as a jack-of-all-trades when it comes to gaming. I play a little bit of everything, except for, like, sports and real-time strategy stuff. And and RPGs. I would play RPGs more often, it's just I don't have the time. Uh, Regardless, yeah, I've been a gamer for... As long as I can remember. No joke, for the longest while, the only system I had was a PlayStation 1. It wasn't until I turned about 12 that I finally got a PS2, then eventually 360, Wii, and so on and so forth. But nevertheless, I've, the amount of games that I've played over the years is daunting, to say the least. But hey, when we were given the opportunity to do this podcast for the Revival House Network, I was like, sure, with the introductions out of the way, Let's get to the news. My first bit of news uh, regards Ghost of Tsushima. You've heard of that game? I've heard of it. I haven't watched a ton of it. I haven't played it, but I kind of really want to. Yeah, I've seen footage of of it, and it looks great. Ghost of Tsushima, as of this recording, came out about two weeks ago, and it went on to become Sony's fastest-selling original IP, a title that was previously held by Horizon Zero Dawn, which came out in 2017. Uh, the game sold 2.4 million copies within the first three days. Previously, in June, The Last of Us Part II uh, had become, excuse me, became Sony's fastest-selling game just in general, with over 4 million copies sold within the first three days. And, of course, you know, there was all that controversy and whatnot surrounding The Last of Us Part II, but we're not going to go into it. But, yeah, nevertheless, uh, congrats to Ghost of Tsushima. And, yeah, it's definitely a game I've seen footage of. 
and it looks really, really cool. Because I, I like the approach, because, you know, it's about feudal Japan and samurais and all that stuff. If you like that so much, why don't you play Sekiro? I, I ain't got time, Matt. I ain't got time to bleed. <laughs> Next bit of news, and this is an interesting one, because when, when I first heard that, I, I had to do a double take. Do you remember G4? Yep. For those who don't know, G4 back in the day was his channel all about games. Which used to be a very common thing. Before YouTube rose to prominence, you know, you had sites like IGN and GameSpot for gaming news and whatnot, but there was a time when television seemed like a prominent era, when, er, not era, area when it comes to video games and to capitalize, it, capitalize on it, the channel G4 was formed. It did well in its early years, but when it came to the late 2000s and early 2010s, it started to struggle. And how did it die? It went the way to Dodo via endless reruns of Cops and Cheaters. Wow. Because, yeah, they used to have a bunch of different gaming programs, but when, you know, we have different executives come in and they, they're like, no, we want to do this for the channel. As a result, you know, the channel loses identity and in turn loses viewers. And as such, G4 went under in 2014. I think a problem with things like that is what kind of games can you show because you want to be able to have a broad audience mm -hmm. but you've also got to contend with advertisers and television regulations so it's like okay there's a new game a new like just very family friendly platformer comes out and you want to talk about that no problems everything's everything's good but then you know blood shoot mcgun sports comes out that's rated m and you you got to try to navigate that and I kind of feel there would be a little bit of an issue of how much truth is there to what they're saying? How much can I trust that their review is genuine and they're not just saying whatever they want because they need to be able to be on good standing with publishers still? Like, that's kind of a concern with things like IGN and stuff where it's like, mm -hmm. like Video Game Donkey has a decent video on that where it's like somebody will tear a game a new one and then end the review with 8 out of 10 little something for everyone it's like what yeah. but i think it's also what killed g4 was the internet because you get to the late 2000s early 2010s youtube explodes and more and more gaming channels are being created that allow people to more instantly you know learn whether or not a game is worth playing versus g4 where it's like oh this show only comes on at this point in time of the day so if you don't watch it watch it then you'll miss out on what what ring the uh, the game will get from the uh, the host yeah a lot of the times when i want to determine whether a game is worth playing or if i might be interested in how the game works i'll literally just look up a full playthrough of it like i'll look up gameplay videos and just skip to a random thing to see what is the the normal gameplay like and is it something i would enjoy which is not something you're going to get when a very limited like 10 minute review on tv so what happened was, a couple of weeks ago, they, they held Comic-Con, virtually, of course, given all that's going on. But one of the things that was revealed during Comic-Con was a teaser trailer. And this teaser trailer, it's camera panning through this, this warehouse filled with a bun bunch of stuff for Lance on this old CRT TV where a game of Pong is going on. And then the screen flickers, and it's like... Uh, I forgot what it said, but it's like... Uh, <laughs> sorry, my, sorry, folks, my mind is freezing up on what's it. Basically, it's like, it's been a while, hasn't it? Or, you know, kept you waiting, something along the lines of that. And then it's like, 
it flashes a G4 logo, and it's like, oh, G4 is coming back. Now, I don't know the details on what exactly the resurrected G4 will be like. It, it's unknown. All we know is it's coming back, and that's it. We don't know if it's going to be a streaming thing, which it probably is, or if it's going to be like on one of the streaming services or be on YouTube or anything like that. The The exact details are, are still unknown. I feel like a channel like that would be perfect if it was an actual TV channel now that esports are a thing mm -hmm. because you could then also have things dedicated to here's what's going on in the different scenes of different games and also have a place where you could live stream stuff. But to be fair, I guess in the absence of that, some channels have done that anyway. Like, I think ESPN sometimes has, like, actual Counter-Strike tournaments on TV. And we've gotten to the point where... Ah, uh, what Evo was it? The last Evo... One of the Evos that had Smash 4 in it, so we're talking a couple years ago, actually was also had... Like, you had the people doing it on Twitch... You also had someone doing it, I think, on, like, ESPN or something. And you had even people streaming it on Disney Channel. But it's a shame that my my, my go-to game, Skullgirls, probably never end up on TV ever because <laughs> of the nature of it. But, yeah, like I said, not, not a whole lot is known about the channel, the Resurrected G4, at this point. We know it's supposed to come out next year. Um, as for how involved, like, former employees of G4 will be, that's also unknown. A lot of them, like me, were caught off guard by the fact that, oh, G4 is coming back. People like Adam Sessler, Morgan Webb, they, they were all like, oh, okay, this was unexpected. So, who knows, maybe they'll take the role of, like, a, an executive role or something like that. We'll see. But I will say this, if, if anybody at uh, NBC Universal is listening to this, hire me. Please. Heck, hire me too. Yeah, I mean, because I, I remember, no joke, when I was younger, I, I used to fantasize, oh, what if I got to work for G4 one day? And of course they went under, and it's like, oh, never mind. So, yeah, G4, it's coming back. Just uh, keep the Cops and Cheaters reruns away from it as far as possible, please. Next up in, in news is uh, a week or so ago, we had the Xbox One Series X Game Showcase. Matt, are you at all interested in the giant tower that is the Xbox One Series X? No, sorry, I'm a PlayStation boy. That's understandable. I'm not. <clears throat> I'm not too excited for the system myself. I've it, seen some people <laughs> criticize it by saying, "Oh, this thing's literally just a PC running whatever weird OS Microsoft does on it." Which I mean, you want to be technical. That's true for other consoles too, but I don't know. I feel like Microsoft has a bit less of a reason to own an Xbox, aside from just, is it cheaper to buy that compared to building a gaming PC of a similar spec due to Microsoft hasn't really been keeping games exclusive to Xbox recently. Like, they've been re-releasing stuff on PC as well, which, to be fair to them, makes complete sense. They are Microsoft. They kind of have an, a, close to a monopoly on... The mobile on computer operating systems as is opening up like Halo and Gears of War and other exclusives to the to the platform to Windows really expands their consumer base. Mm -hmm. Like I've got friends who don't have Xboxes who bought the Master Chief Collection on PC just so they could play it together. Obviously, that's working. Yep. But especially nowadays at PC gaming and console gaming are much closer than they used to be in the past. 
the big thing that any console has to have going for it is it needs to either have exclusives that are only available on it be cheaper than building a PC with sim that can produce similar quality graphics which can be a bit hard to quantify especially depending on games with how much different hardware there is but I think you understand what I mean with that right and oh, I had a third point what was I going to say so it needs to be have exclusives or be cheaper mm -hmm. and if it doesn't have those then what advantage does it have? That's part of the reason why I'm still kind of a PlayStation guy. They seem to have better exclusives, like my favorite game, Bloodborne. But nevertheless, this showcase was intended to get get gamers hyped up for what they what they can expect with Microsoft's latest console. The big, the big title that was showed off was uh, was gameplay footage of Halo Infinite, which is basically a soft reboot of the franchise. You know, it features the Master Chief. There is no Cortana. Because I know some stuff happened, the layer sequels with Cortana, and as a result, she's out of the picture. But yeah, from from the gameplay, it's it's classic Halo, but they've added they've added in some new mechanics and whatnot to spice it up. Namely, the fact that this this Halo title will be open world. Really? So yeah, you'll be able to explore all all of Halo, which, as you know, is a is a giant ring. I think stuff like that's going to be really interesting with the next the next uh, generation because I think. You want my personal opinion. I, I don't... I think graphics have peaked. And I know that someone's going to say, but people have said that all the time. Gra people always say graphics can't get better, and then they get better. I'm talking more from a personal perspective of, like, you know, I'm kind of fine with where graphics are now. I'm okay with that. It's more I'm more interested in, can you make the worlds bigger? Which yeah. has been a trend anyway. I'm also someone who's who prefers... Do something with an art style and not just make everything realistic. There was when they show off the gameplay footage. There was some talk that oh, the the graphics aren't what they they've been hyping the Xbox One Series X to be about. Like the the graphics looked fine, but they didn't have the 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 polish that people were expecting them to have because you know it's supposed to be launching for a new system in addition to the Xbox One. So, you know, it's going to be a cross-platform title, so obviously the Series X will have the prettier visuals, but nevertheless, uh, the developers 343 Industries said that the build was was a work in progress and that the final product will look a whole lot better. So, I'm not too worried about, you know, the whole graphics thing. I, I think when the game does come out, it'll, it'll look good. I think it's, this is a chance for them to, like, regarding Halo Infinite, it's a chance to relaunch the series to not only entice returning players but also new players as well because halo next year halo is going to be 20 years old does that make you feel old a little bit <laughs> yeah it, it's nuts to think that the series has been around for two decades and i think do, doing something like that with halo infinite where you're able to explore all of halo uh in an open world environment in addition to like the linear uh fps combat i think that they'll do a lot to leverage the series in the years to come I just hope that they uh, are able to manage uh, some kind of system that helps you understand where to go. I imagine, because I, I, I've read there will be like, you know, little outposts and stuff that you can find, and you can find maps to, you know, reveal areas of interest and stuff like that. So, uh, other titles revealed at the showcase include a new RPG from Obsidian called Avowed, uh, a reboot of Fable being developed by a developer called Playground Games which has mainly done a lot of the recent Forza titles for the Xbox. 
And then Balon Wonderworld, which is an action-adventure game being headed by Yuji Naka, who used to work for Sonic Team. I'm not personally going to get the Xbox One Series X myself when it comes out, but I think that, judging by some of the titles that I listed off, I think that it'll help It'll help give Microsoft uh, a nice boost when going against Sony, because, you know, when they announced the Xbox One years ago, there were all those qualms about that, because it was, it was originally going to be always online. Oh, boy. And there the was drama like around DRM. that. Yeah, originally it was it was going to be always online. You had to be online or else, if you, I think it was if you were offline for three days or more, the system would delete everything on it. No, don't do that. <laughs> uh, it came with the Kinect, which that's okay. The problem is it had a lot of forced Kinect integration. Like It had to have the Kinect plugged in in order to work and forced a lot of Kinect stuff for using it. I think that one. I'm, that's the detail I'm probably the most fuzzy on. And it also was going to have DRM on a, a, a literal copy by copy basis, so that if you bought a copy of a game, it would have some kind of DRM, presumably either on disc or that you'd have to enter from like a pamphlet in the in the case. Right. That would lock that copy of the game to your account. Oh, but don't worry. They were originally going to have it so you could share a game for a limited period of time <laughs> if you were friends with that person and did something on, like, the Xbox Live to, like, grant them temporary access to the game, which is why Sony kind of just had a whole commercial that was literally just, here's how to share a game on PlayStation 4. Mm -hmm. Hands a copy to another guy. Uh, I, I remember that commercial, yeah, because of that whole fiasco with the Xbox One, Microsoft kind of... Shot themselves in the, in the foot when the Xbox One came out because they had to like remove a lot of that stuff, and it took them a while before they finally guard their momentum uh, later on in the console's life cycle. So yeah, I think they did really do a good job of building trust back up and yeah regaining momentum. So well, uh, we'll just have to wait and see. And finally, my last piece of news regards the did I say nudes? It sounded like it. Far me. My last piece of news regards the upcoming Battletoads reboot. Yeah, they're bringing back Battletoads, didn't you know? Wow. Regarding Battletoads, it's basically that they've announced a release date. It's coming out, uh, as of this recording, it's coming out August 20th for Xbox One and PC. In case you're wondering, uh, the main developer of Battletoads is a studio called Diala Studios, although Rare is contributing to the game, you know, providing input. Yeah, wasn't that originally like that. a Rare game? Yeah, it was. I, I know some people who are looking forward to the Battletoads re reboot so i'll be curious to see what it looks like when it comes out you know they start streaming it what's your news matt well uh i have just a couple of things mostly some new releases for the switch i haven't as the one of us that does own a switch i tend to follow news about games coming on it not a lot mostly due to not having enough money because everything on the switch is expensive but somehow they were able to to cram Crisis onto the Switch with Crisis <laughs> Remastered. Which I'm going to straight up ask, do you really need to remaster that game? There are computers now that couldn't run the original. There's a new Paper Mario. Paper Mario, the Origami King. Deadly Premonition 2 exists. Oh, yeah, Catherine right. Fullbody got released for the Switch. Yeah. yeah. And, I and, and I recently gave you a copy of the original Catherine, which you better start playing it soon. Eh, I'll get to it eventually. <laughs> And Bloodstained Curse of the Moon 2. I'm a very big Metroidvania fan. I love my Metroidvanias. I 
unfortunately have not played Curse of the Moon 2 yet. I actually haven't played the first Curse of the Moon. It's on my to-do list. I've got it, actually, for the Vita. But I haven't yet sat around and played it. I I'm, can't remember. I think it's more of a classic Castlevania-style game rather than Metroidvania, which, that's cool. I don't... I'm not entirely sure about Curse of the Moon 2. But I did play Bloodstained, Ritual of the Night, okay. on my really low-end PC that can barely do it. But... I got a somewhat consistent 35 to 40 frames, kind of. The only downside is apparently the game does not like being less than 60 FPS. Most characters' voices work completely fine, except Miriam's. Her voice gets all weird and crackly, and there's so far not been a fix for it, which means I just kind of have to play with voice acting off, which sucks. Otherwise, yeah. it's just massive slowdown on Miriam's lines. Okay. Uh, what else? That's about all I've got. Let's see, some other stuff. Oh, Ninjala. Ninjala came out. It came out, well, now, two months <laughs> ago, but yeah, but my... I've played a lot of it okay, recently. Okay, yeah. Just... So I th was very confused of what it is initially because a lot of people compared it to Splatoon, and having played it, I think, for very good reason. A good, It's essentially a melee-based battle royale with up to eight players. That also has a 4v4 team mode. It's centered around kids that basically are in training to become ninjas. Okay. Hence the name Ninjala. Alright. And what they do is they have this thing that's called ninja gum. And yeah, it's literally gum. Okay. And they transform it into weapons somehow. I don't know. That's just what the game does. And there's a few different types of weapon classes, and each one has a meter that builds up that allows you to do a special attack that usually KOs either way more easily or instantly, depending on the weapon. And it's a fun little game. It's I've seen people describe it as, what if Splatoon was a fighting game? And that's pretty accurate. I'm not that great at it. Uh, a lot of the combat is very much heavily based around the parry system, where when you're getting attacked, you can parry. Mm -hmm. And it works on this weird rock-paper-scissors system, where you and the person who are now in that locked in that fight either move the analog stick left, right, up, or down, with down and up being being their own directions and left and right being counted as basically the same one. And certain directions parry other ones. Okay. So it's about remembering that, but it's also completely luck-based because you never truly know what your opponent chose until they do it. Alright. Otherwise, it's still really fun. A lot of it kind of... I wish the combos were a little bit more in-depth. It mostly kind of devolves into button mash and hope your opponent doesn't parry. And if they do parry, use a break attack that will instead cancel out the parry and let you get free attacks on them okay is that about it when it comes to news mm-hmm all right well that wraps up the news part of the show uh we'll, we'll be right back after this break to discuss what games we've been playing over the course of this month in crash twin sanity a strange twist of fate is forced crash and the evil dr cortex to team up and there are some sweet moves in this game like roller brawl Allow us to demonstrate. 
<laughs> Take control of an orange daredevil and evil genius using bone-crushing team moves. Just because they're working together doesn't mean they gotta like it. Something went wrong. Crash to Insanity. Rated E for everyone. And we're back. This is the part of the show where we talk about what games we played over the course of this month. And since Matt kind of involuntarily started the next part by going into detail about Ninjala, I'm going to let him continue on with him dis him discussing what he's been playing over the course of this month. Matt? Well, I've already discussed Ninjala, so let's go to the main game it's compared to, Splatoon 2. Uh, I have a lot of hours in Splatoon 2, almost an unhealthy amount. If you aren't aware of what Splatoon 2 is, or the original Splatoon, it's a 8-person team-based shooter, third-person shooter, that's almost impossible to compare to anything else because it's the way it works is so unique. Like, there's no game that was like Splatoon before Splatoon. There are only games that are like Splatoon. The way it works is you have a variety of different weapons that shoot ink, and the goal of the primary mode of the game is to just cover more of the ground than your opponents with your your team's ink. Do note, while you can ink walls, that doesn't count. The algorithm that calculates it doesn't count that. So that's a very early beginner stake that I fell into a lot. There are also ranked game modes as well, which I tend to play a lot more, which is stuff like there's one called Splat Zones, which is just competitive turf war, where instead of the whole map, you compete to take control of usually one or two specific designated areas in the middle of the map. Mm -hmm. and try to maintain control of that as long as possible. There's tower control, which is kind of like your basic capture... Uh, not capture the flag. That's a different mode. It's your basic just tower defense, king of the hill kind of thing, except right. the tower that you stand on moves, and the goal is to get the, your, the tower to move farther on the opponent's side than they can get it to move towards yours. That's currently... It's not my favorite game mode, but it's the one I have the most in. If you've played Splatoon, you'll you'll know what this means. It's I'm in S plus four in tower control. I I ain't X rank, but it ain't nothing to turn turn away at. Yeah, while I'm thinking about it, do you know exactly how many hours you put into Splatoon two? No, I would have to look. I, I and even then, Switch doesn't really give you an exact an exact count. The most it'll tell you is just about this many hours. Are we talking hundreds of hours or dozens? Hundreds and. The capture the flag mode is called Rainmaker. Essentially, beginning of the game, in the middle, there's a weapon called the Rainmaker. Goal is capture it, move it closer to the opponent's goal, or on the opponent's goal for your opponent. It also functions as a weapon. Mm -hmm. A very slow weapon, but one that when it fires has a big splash radius. Splash damage. But otherwise, you need to be very coordinated about protecting the person who's got... The Rainmaker. And the last competitive mode is Clam Blitz, which is clams uh, randomly spawn around the map. Okay. The goal is you, you, both teams have a basket. You want to get a specific clam, like a super clam, I think it's called, something like that, that will break the barrier for the opponent's basket and get 100 points in. Note, clams do not equal one clam to one point. I think they're like two, three, or four, or five points per clam. But okay. the goal is get 100 points for your opponent does or just rack up the most within the time frame. There's also a cooperative mode called Salmon Run, which is about 
you know, in Splatoon, all of the characters are squids and octopus people. Yeah. So you're fighting fish people to destroy. They're called salmonids, and they're also and the uh, the big ones are called boss salmonids because they're supposed to be salmon. Right. And they the boss salmonids will drop golden eggs. Goal is get as many golden eggs as possible at the very least whatever your quota is, which changes based on your rank. And you grab the eggs, take them to a designated basket, and drop them in. So I love Splatoon too. And we just got announced. Three more Splatfests. First one happening this month. I'm very happy about that. That's the main the main selling point to Splatoon 2 is that it has events called Splatfests where everybody who plays the game picks one of two teams that compete against each other in three categories. Who has the most votes? Who's the most popular team? As you would expect. And two game modes. There's casual mode. Well, this isn't really... This isn't the most accurate way, but there's casual and then like competitive kind of or pro. So who gets the most points based on you know how many wins each team gets in the casual mode and the pro mode, and whoever has best two out of three basically to see who who wins. And it's great because it's all of the maps have their own special unique variations where the ink changes. The ink gets little gets little shiny little metal bits in it that makes it look cooler. The stages are all in daytime in the main game, but during a Splatfest, it's like you can see them all at night. Is there anything you don't like about Splatoon 2? Yeah, any problems, flaws? Online's not the best, but that's just true for Nintendo Switch Online anyway. Anybody who knows, who's played Splatoon 2, knows what it's like to just be in the lobby and get failed to connect to other consoles. A connection error has occurred. If you had to give this game a score, you know, X out of 10, what would it be? Probably an 8 or a 9 out of 10. Maybe close to an 8.5. Okay. Because it's very unique. There's nothing like it. And what I do like is they don't really emphasize a ton on being better. Like, they, they'll give you a point rating based on how much ink you turf, you, how much turf you inked at the end of the game, but it's like, they, they don't really focus on a lot of the stuff, a lot of competitive games. Like, the first game actually gave told you how many kills you got and how many times you got killed. This one doesn't. It yeah. only tells you how many specials you used and how many kills you got. And I do like that there is, in the main Turf War game mode, there's a, a background mechanic where the game actually calculates how well you are doing without telling you. And matches you to similarly ranked people. So it's like, if you just started out and you don't know what you're doing, you're not going to go up against old S plus 4 over here, going to destroy you in a heartbeat. You get matched with people of similar skill level. I mean, it's not the most accurate ranking system in the world, but it's better than not having one at all. And I think generally gets on the mark, because most of the time I feel like I am competing against people on my skill level rather than either... Someone way above me or way below me. So what, what would you say is, is superior? Splatoon 2 or Team Fortress 2? What is the Currently, to? Splatoon 2. <laughs> okay. I used to love Team Fortress 2. That game's been done dirty by a lot of things. More importantly, uh, when are you going to get a job for Nintendo, specifically the part of Nintendo that develops Splatoon? God, I wish. No, it, they actually are the same team that does Animal Crossing. There you go. So... 
I think one of the reasons why we might now be getting more Splatfest is because is because Animal Crossing's dev time is done. It's released. What else have you played recently? So, I said I really love my Metroidvanias. Yeah. Uh, recently, I've been going back through the Shantae games. I haven't really played a ton of half of Seven Sirens. It is on my two playlist. I have it. I just have not. I've only barely played it. And when I do play it, I'm so, like, not far into the game. I'll probably just restart. Seven Sirens is the most recent one, right? Yes, most recent one. Okay. Some people have critiqued Seven Sirens for being a bit too simple. When they rebooted it, kind of, sort of, it's really confusing whether Half Genie Hero is a reboot or a sequel or whatever. Yeah. It's probably more better to just consider it a reboot. They simplified some things down a little bit, but still enough that it it feels like a fully fleshed out game. It feels a bit more simplified in Seven Sirens because, remember when this game first came out, it was exclusive to Apple Arcade. What? Yeah. It was an Apple Arcade game. So it was an iPhone game before it released on consoles. Okay. Whatever floats their boat. But... And it's a, there's a little bit of a precedent for that, because uh, Shantae, the sequel to Shantae, Risky's Revenge, actually did get put on phones, did get an iPhone version. Right. So yeah, I've been playing, replaying through them. I've played Half Genie Hero only a couple times, but I've played the third game in the series, Shantae and the Pirate's Curse, a ton. I love that game. It was my first Shantae game. And I play it a ton. Have you ever played the original? Yes, I have it for the Virtual Console on the 3DS. That's what I was getting in. I was about to talk about. I have been since I have the entire series. I've been playing through the entire series, um, which I played the original Shantae, which is not very long. It is a short game. How short? Uh, about four or five hours. Okay. Not particularly short back then. Right. But also remember. They did a couple things wrong with the first one. Like, for example, it was a Game Boy Color game that came out in 2002, a year after the Game Boy Advance came out. But I think that might have just been they were kind of already on that system. It's what they knew. And they maybe not couldn't get a hold of a Game Boy Advance dev kit because mm-hmm. they had released other Game Boy Color games. But what's weird is they have a version of the game called Advanced Mode, which is basically if you just plug it into a Game Boy Advance it unlocks a new dance in the game. Which the game is based around, you learn, you go through the game, you learn dances that help you turn into different animals that let you more easily traverse places and get to places you couldn't before. You know, typical Metroidvania non-linear or guided non-linearity. But if you aren't playing on a Game Boy Advance, that version, that extra dance is flat out not available to you. Which becomes a problem if you have the virtual console version like I do. Because the game was not Game Boy Advance enhanced when it was released. So the dance is kind of useful. You get it like pretty late into the game. But it combines a couple of dances into one that makes it really useful. So, eh. Okay. And right now I'm on my way through, I'm probably about halfway through, even close to two-thirds of the way through, the sequel, Shantae Risky's Revenge, which was a DSi game. Okay. And then when I'm done with that, I'm going to go back to... Half Genie Hero, or no, Pirate's Curse, which is the third game, and then Half Genie Hero, and then finally play through Seven, Seven Sirens, Sirens proper. Of the Shantae games you played, which one would you say is your favorite? 
Shantae and the Pirates Curse. Okay, okay. Wait, ha- have you played Shantae Advance, a.k.a. the cancelled sequel to Shantae? <laughs> I honestly think that it's probably likely that that was just reworked into Shantae uh, seven- and uh, Risky's Risky Revenge. Revenge. Yeah, it was, because I-, I remember reading about Risky Revenge's development and Nintendo Power way back when. I, I have a whole lot of issues tucked away that. Feel free to look at them to get a glimpse at the Shantae series back circa 2009. <laughs> so. Yeah, so one another thing that I've actually been getting into recently is old DOS games for MS-DOS. Haven't, haven't you been to those for quite a while? Yes, but since some things happened and one of my hard drives that had all of my collection on died, I haven't been playing them so, a ton. So you lost Jazz Jackrabbit? No. Well, yes, but I refound it. Okay. I'm very happy. I actually do have a copy of the shareware version of Jazz Jackrabbit on floppy disk. I wonder, I wonder not to get too sidetracked, I wonder who owns the rights to Jazz Jackrabbit. Does Cliff Blazinski own it, or does Epic? I think Epic does. And Epic's just not doing anything of it. <laughs> hey, at Epic Games, make a new Jazz Jackrabbit. It's, I think, I find <laughs> it really funny how they, how Epic is just like, uh, yeah, we can't really re-release it, we don't have the source code. That hasn't stopped people. Anyway, so if you're not familiar with DOS, because, you know, most people I think our age wouldn't be, it was an old operating system that stands for Disk Operating System. Usually when people say DOS, they refer to MS-DOS, Microsoft DOS, but there's tons of others. Essentially, it was an operating system that was designed to handle floppy disks and hard drives back in, like, the 70s and 80s, and still carried on and worked in the 90s. If you've ever seen a command prompt on a computer, that's basically what it is. But that's the entire operating system. The nice thing about DOS games is, I hesitate to say public domain, but most of the, a lot of them are what's classified as abandonware, which means, from a legal standpoint, they're not public domain. People do technically, someone, I get the copyright on them, still stands. But that doesn't really mean anything if the company that owned the copyright has been defunct for 20 years. And when it comes to things like this, the onus is on whoever owns the copyright to prosecute copyright violations. Which is why tons of DOS games are just available for free online. So what are some titles you've played on DOS recently? Jazz Jackrabbit, for one. It's kind of like the Sonic the Hedgehog for PCs. Because it's a very fast-paced game, but also you've got a gun! Uh, but one that I've really been getting into is called Claw, also known as Captain Claw. It's hard to get it to run. It does not like modern operating systems, which it, it is a problem you find with a lot of games based around the 32-bit architectures of the 90s. Mm-hmm. Basically, the game, you can find it very easily online, literally, if you just type Captain Claw DOS. You'll find it. I can't really tell you where due to legal concerns, <laughs> which is why I also technically have to say, but track down a CD or DVD copy of it, which is very expensive. Anyway, if you try to install it, even from a legitimate copy, it's a problem because the game just flat out does not like 64-bit architecture. Never was designed for it. So even if you go the legal route of buying legitimate CD or DVD copy of it, you then have to go on the, a website that has a custom installer for modern Windows, which is what I had to do. But I was able to do that, and I've got the DVD version, which I'm going to tell you, you want the DVD version because it has cutscenes 
that are in way higher quality than the CD version. So yeah, actual full animated 2D animated cutscenes. Oh wow! And the nice thing about a lot of these DOS games is some of them still work with modern Xbox controllers. Really? Yeah, a lot of them when you open them in DOS box just natively work. Problem is they treat the analog stick as the joystick, but there's a way around that. Uh, in DOS box, if you open, there's a menu that I think it's like Control and F1 to open the menu. It lets you do a key mapper, so you can map the D-pad to the arrow keys, and otherwise still have everything working as if it was as intended. And even if you ha- encounter a game that doesn't support a controller, a modern one, you still just do that. Open it right. up and play it. Do you own Wolfenstein or do you want DOS? No. Oh, come on. More, more importantly, I got... I'll put it to you like this. I'm not entirely sure about Wolfenstein, but I think if you're going to play Doom, you probably don't want to play the original DOS version. You probably are more likely going to want a source version of it and do that instead. Like, one of the... Because the source, the source ports of them, like, things like GZ Doom and Vavoom, stuff like that, have more... And that's not the only one. There's tons of them. They often add a lot of cu- more customizability that to, for modern hardware, like mouse aiming, proper mouse aiming, that these games originally didn't have. Okay. Uh, any other titles of noteworthiness that you've played recently that you want to mention before I talk about what I've been playing? Another title I've been playing a lot. Well, just for Rapid Fire, which is a couple of them. Castlevania Harmony of Dissonance. Really like that. It's a Game Boy game, a Game Boy Advance game. Been replaying it because I've actually got all of the the mobile Castlevanias except for the original Game Boy ones. So I've yeah. got all three GBA ones, all three DS ones, which are very expensive right now. So I'm glad I got them when they were much cheaper. Uh, I've also been I've been replaying Hat in Time recently. I love that game. It's uh, a great game. What system is it for? Everything. Oh, okay. PC, Switch. PS4, Xbox One. It's Dream, on everything. Dreamcast? No. GameSphere? No. My Toaster? Yeah, A Hat in Time. It came out in 2017, and it I have it for PC, so it plays a bit nicer with, with my older PC. I still can only really run it at around 30 to 40 FPS, but it's way more consistent unless I boot up the Nikusa Metro DLC, in which case I have to turn everything down to like low resolution because of all of the lighting effects. I'm considering, honestly, just getting it for my Switch, just to have it on a platform that runs better. Alrighty, well, now, time for me to talk about what what all I've been playing over the course of this month. And I'd say the general theme of the stuff that I've played is is that they're titles that are owned by Naughty Dog, or they used to be owned by Naughty Dog. So I'm starting with Crash Bandicoot 3 for the PlayStation 1, and now technically PS4, Xbox One, and Switch, because of the Insane Trilogy. Nevertheless, Crash Bandicoot Bandicoot 3, it's, it's a great platformer. It's basically Crash Bandicoot 2, but with some new stuff added in and also time travel. Because the, the hook of this is that, you know, Cortex, he failed once again. So this time, when he fails, he, uh, the second time, parts of his satellite crash land on island and that awakens Uka Uka, who is Aku, Aku's evil twin. And in turn, uh, Cortex pleads for Uka Uka to give him assistance so he does, in the form of a time-dimension-hopping fellow named Entropy. So once Aku Aku realizes there's a great disturbance and that Uka Uka has been awakened, Crash and Coco set out on a journey across time in the past, present, and future 
to get her the crystals, get her all the relics, get her the gems, in an effort to stop Cortex, Uka Uka, and Entropy from taking over the world. Nothing new if you played any of the Crash Bandicoot games, but where Crash Bandicoot is best at is its gameplay. It's classic 2.5D platforming. Uh, I like the varied locations. You go from ancient Egypt to medieval times to ancient China to uh, 1950s America where you're, you're on a hot rod and you're racing against our racers in order to get first place. There's a lot of variety to Crash Bandicoot 3, which I appreciate. It's got a nice balance of traditional platforming as well as vehicular bits. And I will say that, and I'll say this, but even the water levels where you're underwater and you're navigating through... You know, you're spinning at sharks and all that. The underwater levels are actually pretty fun. Because, you know, most people can't stand water levels, but this is one of the few times where the water levels are actually fun. I would say this is definitely the easiest of the original trilogy because you get new abilities from defeating bosses. So you get a double jump, you get a, a, a rapid-fire spin where if you rapidly press square, crash, you know, will spin fast, which is useful because you can use it to glide over chunks of levels. You also get Fruit Bazooka for taking out enemies at distance. And a lot of this stuff uh, would be reused in Wrath of Cortex. So so I definitely argue it is the easiest of the three. But then again, it's like Night Dog has come this far. And it's like at that point, they knew like, oh yeah, we know how to make a Crash Bandicoot game. But I'd say the where the challenge really comes is through the time trials. Because after you beat the five, le the five levels of an area and then defeat the boss, you can go back and replay those levels... Not to just gather the color gems or box gems, but to also complete a time trial where the goal is to beat the level as fast as possible. I definitely recommend holding off on those until after you defeat the final boss and unlock the speed shoes. Because with the speed shoes, you have a stronger chance at getting the gold or platinum relics uh, when you do the time trials for each level. But other than that, I'd still say Cra Crash 3 is a, is a solid sequel. Uh, of the three games... Crash Bandicoot 2 is still my favorite. It's a great sequel and just a great game in its own right. But Crash Bandicoot 3 is a solid follow-up. And then we get to the post-Night Dog Crash Bandicoot games with Crash Twin Sandy. Now, Matt, you have a bit of a personal history with Crash Twin Sandy, right? Yeah, I I gave you my copy of it. So yes. I have played it a bit before, and I have been replaying it with another copy. Okay. Wait. It's short. <laughs> yeah, it's short. Uh, let me get into it. I've heard a lot of mixed thoughts on Crash Twin Sandy over the years from different people and forums and whatnot. So when I came into it, I was just I was going in blind. I was basically a quote unquote Crash Twin Sandy virgin, if you will. So when I played it and I finished, it, I was like, wow, there are a lot of great ideas in this game, but it feels haphazardly strung together. And when I looked into the history of the game, it was like, oh, well that explains a lot. So the the idea is that Crash and Cortex have to have to team up to stop the evil twins, which are these air-dimensional birds, the result of a freak accident caused by Cortex when he was a kid. Roll with it, folks. It's a video game. But yeah, uh, Crash and Cortex have to temporarily team up to stop the evil twins. And you know the the first three games definitely had a car cartoony approach, but this game it runs wild with it. The, it's like because there's a lot of slapstick yaks involving Crash and Cortex, especially Cortex, who's the butt of many jokes and pratfalls. And the game is fourth wall as hell because the number of times that they break the fourth wall in reference 
other games and you know the logic behind certain mechanics it's like I like this. I like this approach. It's definitely more, I'd say, in line with Ren and Stimpy, Animaniacs, stuff like that. But I like it. And, yeah, it's funny because, like, late in the game, there's, like, a brief cameo from Spyro, if you remember. Was there? Yeah, there is. He, he's, uh, when I get to, to the Evil Twins treasure room, your Crash villains are there about to steal it, but then Spyro comes out, out of nowhere and inflames them. I haven't gotten that far yet. Okay. But also what's, what sets Crash Twin Sanity apart from its predecessors is that instead of being a 2.5D platformer, it's a, it's a full-fledged uh, 3D platformer that mixes linearity with sandbox environments. Because they travel in new locations, and most of those locations you're allowed to explore and look for hidden secrets in, in the form of gems. And I definitely say I, I like the optional gem challenges because they... They make good use of the platforming and puzzle solving, and some of the later ones get quite tricky, but when you pull it off and you get that gem, it feels satisfying. I will say, I do have one complaint, now that you're discussing platforming, yeah. about how it works. I feel like the double jump really doesn't do as much as it should. Like, it doesn't go as high as it should. It barely gives you any extra air. It it works. And I think you fall a bit too quickly. Yeah, it it works. It gets the job done. But the main the main hook of the gameplay is that Crash and Cortex work here because there's a lot of bits where Crash and Cortex you have to get over platforms and whatnot, which involves a lot of throwing Cortex to Cortex over gaps so he can activate a lever uh, or defeat some enemies, stuff like that. But it works. My my favorite bits with the Crash and Cortex gameplay are where they're they're being the crap out of each other, so it becomes like you're controlling the ball. And you have to navigate them through the levels and make sure that they don't fall off. I like I like stuff like that. But I think its main problem is that, yeah, like you said, it's short. Because the game goes by so quickly that when when I reach the, uh, the quote-unquote negative universe, where you encounter, like, evil crash and stuff like that, I was like, oh, oh we're, we're already at the end of the game, huh? That was quick. And it's like, you beat it, and it's like, oh, it only took four hours. Wow. That's, uh, that's short. And not only that, while the game looks fine graphically, and, and I like the voice acting because this is when they brought in Lex Lang to voice Cortex and not Clancy Brown. You know, he, he's, he's great as Cortex, but I love the music. That acapella. Yeah, the music is really good in the game. Yeah, it was done by a group called Spiral Mouth, and they're, they're an acapella band, so all the music is acapella. And it, at times, it, it gets very surrealistic, because of the acapella nature, but it's also like one of the highlights of the game. But what is not what is not a highlight is the amount of missing sound effects during cutscenes. Yeah, so many sound effects just are missing. And it's jarring because I remember there's a bit where Crash uh, lands on Iceberg where Entropy and Embryo are on. So Entropy six Embryo on Crash. So he drinks a potion and he starts to transform. But as he's transforming, there are no sound effects. So you hear the music, but he's just, you know, flipping out, and there are no sound effects, so it's weirdly quiet. Uh, and also the, the checkpoint system is a little off, because annoyingly, you can't skip cutscenes. But if you die, say, during a boss fight, rather than, you know, put you back right as the boss fight begins, it puts you right before you encounter the boss fight, so you have to, you know, walk up, watch the cutscene again. And like I said, cutscenes can't be skipped. Therefore, it, it becomes a bit of a grind if you start dying over and over. And 
it, it gets annoying. Not too annoying, but yeah, it, it's a it's a sign that yeah the game was rushed. And there's there's a lot of info out there about about the game's development. And heck, there's even like one of the unlockables for finding certain gems is like concept art dedicated to showing all the stuff that was cut regarding cutscenes, gameplay designs, all that stuff. And it kind of makes me wonder, you know, similar to another game we'll, we'll be discussing later, it's like, it's kind of like what could have been. Like, if Traveler's Tales, yes, that Traveler's Tales, had been allowed to properly finish the game, it, it kind of makes me wonder what could have been, because I think that if they'd been able to keep all the concept that, concepts they'd want to explore and just make it a full-fledged adventure, I, I think it could have been a lot better. That is, but but as it stands, Crash Twin Sandy is is decent. It's enjoyable, but it, it, it lacks that 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 extra that extra polish. You know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, definitely. It's like if if Crash Bandicoot Three is a is an eight out of ten, I'd say Crash Twin Sandy is a six out of ten. Well, moving on from Orange Bandicoots, uh, Uncharted. I've been making my way through the Uncharted series over the course of this year, and I can safely say the Uncharted series has become one of my favorite uh, gaming franchises, and I wish I dis discovered it sooner. It's like, growing up, I knew about Uncharted, but since I didn't have a PS3, I wasn't able to play any of them. But when I got a PS4, I eventually tracked down the Nathan Drake collection, uh, Uncharted 4, and its spinoff, Lost Legacy, for dirt cheap uh, Black at Black Friday last year. So I've been making my way through the series, and I love it. I recently beat Uncharted 3, and right now I'm about three-fourths of the way through Uncharted 4. Uncharted 3, it's a great sequel. If there's one thing I can say about Uncharted so far, is that it's it's a consistently solid line of games. And it gets incrementally better with each installment, because they improve things like the gameplay and whatnot. They add, you know, more set-piece moments, but it never loses... It never loses that tight balance of story and gameplay. And, and in regards to Uncharted 3, they go the extra step and it, they focus on the relationship between Nathan Drake and Sully. They delve into Nate's past and there's there are some bits where you play as a young Nathan Drake. And those are fun. And I like a lot of the set piece stuff because there's one bit towards the end of the game where you're on a horse and you're chasing after the bad guys. And it reminded me a lot of the scene in The Last Crusade where Indiana Jones teams up with this cult to stop the Nazis from reaching the site where the Holy Grail is. So yeah, it's a great game, Uncharted 3. I'm trying I'm trying to keep what I have to say about it, keep it on the low, because maybe talk about the series in depth with somebody next time. We'll just have to wait and see. But yeah, Uncharted 3, go play it. Don't throw it aside like Matt did when he got his PS3. Well, at the time, it, I got... It was like I was starting to play the Assassin's Creed games, and to me it just felt like not Assassin's Creed, and that's kind of why I wrote it off. And I'm not, eh, I don't know. Some about it just doesn't appeal to me that you're, much. You're not big on exploring ancient ruins and whatnot? If I'm going to explore ancient ruins, I better get the ability to shoot a fireball or something cool. No. You, you find a bunch of cool knickknacks, though. But And then finally, Uncharted 4, like I said... I'm about three-fourths of the way through the game, but I like it just as much as the other ones. It definitely leans more towards the story than the other games, especially early on, because like the first third of the game, there's a lot more cutscenes and talking with characters than there is, you know, platforming, shooting, and stuff like that. But once you get to the platforming and shooting, it's just as great as ever. But I do appreciate the added focus on 
uh, story and characters because in this one they introduce uh, Nate's long lost brother Sam, who as we, we learn he was stuck in a Panama jail for 15 years after a botched uh, escape attempt. I'm liking it. Screw it. I love Uncharted. I'm not afraid to admit it. I love Uncharted. No North, if you're listening to this, call me. Now that we've finished discussing what we've been playing over the last month, we're going to take one fall break, and when we come back, Will's going to talk anal probes and calculations as he discusses the The Straw Humans remake for PS4. Good evening, my fellow Americans. In recent days, rumors have run rampant of flying saucers, alien invaders from other worlds. The truth is, America has been attacked. Regiments two and four, form up the main junction. One and three, take the flight. Charge! is on the march, my friends. Good night, and God bless America. And we're back. Before I discuss the remake, I think it's necessary to give a little backstory on my history with the series, as I am a huge fan of the Shaw Humans. When I was young, I used to collect old gaming magazines from thrift stores or flea markets our family went to. And in one of the issues I acquired, there was a full-page ad for this game called The Straw Humans. The image of the pissed-off alien staring at me with mayhem and destruction unfolding in the background piqued the interest of my 14-year-old self. I adored science fiction, and seeing that ad got me more than curious about what The Straw Humans was. Eventually, I acquired the first two games for PS2 and was hooked. I couldn't get enough of the manic mayhem Crypto Unleashed, and the game skewering of the 50s and 60s had me laughing, even if I didn't understand most of the humor back then. I loved the games for their unique premise. When I found out there were two more sequels, one for the Wii and one for the 360, I knew I had to get those two. At the time, I didn't have much access to the internet, so I had little knowledge of the reputation of the later sequels, which had averages of 50 and 30 on Metacritic. I put a lot of time into Big Willy Unleashed, the one for the Wii, and Path of the Furon, the 360 entry. No joke, I got an Xbox 360 for Christmas simply because I wanted to play Path of the Furon, which at that point was three years old since I got my 360 in 2011. Because I didn't have much access to income, I played the Destroy Humans games ad nauseum. But as I got older and my gaming taste expanded, I moved away from the series and on to other great games. I enjoyed Destroy Humans, but as I got older, I realized there was no way the series was ever going to return. Keep in mind, I first learned about Destroy Humans in about 2010-2011. So at that point, it had been 2-3 years since the last game, Path of Fear on which, suffice to say, was not received nicely by the critics at all. When Nordic Games acquired it and several other properties during THQ's bankruptcy, I slightly hoped that they'd do something with the franchise. But I was fine if they didn't. Fast forward to 2019 or more specifically 2018. The year before they announced Destroy Humans was coming back, I wrote a series retrospective on the series and published it on my website, Gamer Guys Reviews. It was fun going through all the games after so long, but I also realized by then that the later entries weren't quite up to par with the first two games. They had good ideas, but haphazard execution. 
And regarding the humor, well, instead of it being witty and smart, it relied a bit too much on obvious references. Case in point, in Big Wooly Unleashed, one of the levels you visit is called Fancy Atoll. Get it? It's Fancy Island, but it's an atoll. And then Path of the Furon goes even further with a lot of obvious lampoons like, Here's Sonny and Cher, but Sammy and Fair. Here's John Saxon, but his name is Saxon. And here's actor Bolo Young, but his, this character is called Rolo. And uh, did I forget to mention when you're in the China level that a lot of characters like to pronounce Rolo's name as Roro? Yeah, let that sink in. Needless to say, even though I realized that the later entries weren't quite as good as the first two games, I nevertheless realized that they had their moments. But at the same time, I also realized that they had a lot of shortcomings. Especially Paths of the Furon. Needless to say, uh, teenage, teenage me was a lot more forgiving of the technical issues that plague Paths of the Furon. But 20-something-year-old me now is like, ugh, look at all these glitches. There's so many glitches in here, it gives a Bethesda game a run for its money. And it's clearly indicated that, yeah, both both these games just need more time in the oven. Ironically, Path of the Furon ends with protagonist Crypto telling Pox, See you in 10 years! That game came out in 2008, although if you want to get technical, the 360 version came out in 2008, but the PS3 port, which only released in Europe and Australia, uh, it came out in 2009. Nevertheless, Nearly a decade after Crypto uttered those words, THQ Nordic dropped the trailer at E3 2019. And in that trailer, a throng of humans were hypnotized to come to a drive-in, where a gray alien hypnotized the masses with the power of Rammstein's Ick Will before vaporizing them. The straw of humans was back. Needless to say, I may or may not have screamed like a little girl after seeing that trailer, but oh my god, I was hyped. THQ Nordic did the unthinkable and brought back Destroy All Humans. I fervently followed the remake's development, and two months before its release, I pre-ordered the DNA Collector's Edition. Money well spent, if you ask me. And yet, here I am now, sitting here recording this audio while looking at a statue of Crypto lifting a cow with psychokinesis. And I couldn't be happier, because hey, Destroy All Humans is back! So, with that history lesson out of the way, let's talk about the remake. So the story goes something like this. The Furons are in a predicament. Eons of waging war on inferior races with unregulated weaponry has resulted in the loss of genitalia. Because of this, they've resorted to cloning to keep their race alive. But with DNA banks depleting, they're on the verge of extinction. As it turns out though, humans have buried within their brain stems a strand of pure Furon DNA, which was the result of some Furon sailors laying off some steam with the humans of the time after fighting the Martians. Knowing this, the commander Orthopox-13 orders an invasion of Earth. While Cryptosperium-137 collects DNA, he needs to figure out what happened to his pre predecessor Crypto-136, whose saucer was accidentally knocked out of the sky by a missile launch he happened to be hovering over, and as such, he has been captured by the US military. For a game that takes the piss out of McCarthyism and makes cow abuse the funniest thing ever, there's a serious edge to destroy humans' plot. The Furons have a legit reason for invading Earth because without the human brainstems, their race is kaput. Fifteen years later, and the ranks holds up. It lampoons what made the 1950s and 1950s, especially the Red Scare. 90% of everyone Crypto encounters thinks he's a communist invader. 
including the military commander's crypto takes on. While the Majestic, the clandestine government agency trying to stop the Furons, employs a number of plans designed to brainwash the masses into believing the Furons are the Red Menace. Most of the missions involve hijacking Majestic's plans and turning them into something that benefits the invasion. For example, Crypto stops an attempt to hypnotize moviegoers at the drive-in so he can play a special projection Pox concocted. If there are two characters that epitomize what the show Humans is about, it's Crypto and Pox. By the way, if, if you haven't caught on to this by now, but all the Furons are named after diseases, so Orthopox is named after Pox, and Cryptosperdium is named after a disease called Cryptosperdium. And in the later games, we find out the Furon Emperor, his name is Meningitis. But going back to the characters, Pox is a scheming mastermind, always concocting ways to over overthrow the humans, while Crypto is a nihilistic alien with an itchy trigger finger. He cares nothing about humans and would prefer to just raise everything to the ground. It only makes sense a persona like his is backed up with a Jack Nicholson sounding voice. What actors Richard Horvitz and Grant Albrecht bring to Pox and Crypto respectively is genius. And you can't have a straw humans game without those two voices. I've noticed some critics have taken issue with Ryan humor. As of this recording, the PS4 version currently holds a 69 out of 100 on Metacritic, which is either the greatest average ever or the worst. You pick. But nevertheless, if some of the critics in the reviews I've read, they've taken issue with the Ryan humor. Now I can understand why certain individuals might find the comedy outdated in certain aspects. But if you set a game in the 50s, you have to satirize what defined a decade. Plus, it at very least tries to be clever and not settle for obvious references. Which again, obvious references is what plagues a lot of the humor in Big Willie Unleashed and Path of the Furon. Also, can I just say that this game will not make you feel like an asshole for vaporizing humans? Just saying. <laughs> Uh, oh, and uh, Crypto's voice is iconic. The fact some reviews find it irritating is something I take issue with. I mean, it's like, without that Jack Nicholson sounding voice, it's like, he, he's just an everyday alien invader. Without it, it's just, that voice is a defying aspect of, of Crypto, so to not have it would be like, would be wrong. <laughs> On to the gameplay. So Destroying Humans is a remake of the first game. Keeping in tune with the Crash Bandicoot and Spyro remakes, it preserves the story, characters, levels, and missions, but overalls everything else. In addition to giving the title graphical facelift courtesy of Unreal Engine 4. Crypto's movement and flexibility has received an overhaul. In the original, he could only use his weapons and powers separately, but he is now able to use his weapons and abilities simultaneously. This was an idea toyed with in Path of Fearon, where in that game, Crypto could use PK and shoot and shoot something at the same time, plus he could use his uh, mental lock as an improvised lock-on for locking on the foes and whatnot. But whereas in that game, that was something they kind of toyed with with streamlining controls, and this remake, the streamlining has been amped up to 11. Mental abilities now require just button presses or pressing certain spots on the D-pad to activate them. Admittedly, using PK for the first time was a little off-putting. Instead of pressing the trigger and then a button to throw, like in prior games, you press R1 to grab something and then hold R1 to throw it or tab the button to drop the item. Getting used to the streamlined controls takes some adjusting, but it isn't long before you're lifting cops into the air while shooting civilians with Zapomatic. Most of the powers are ripped straight from the first game, with the exception of Follow and Forget, which originate in Astral Humans 2. 
Psychokinesis lets you lift people and objects into the air. Mind read lets you read minds. Go figure. The holobob is a disguised mechanic where crypto takes on the identity of someone to blend in uh, without alluring the humans. Extract lets crypto extract brains. While hypnotize causes a human to dance. Good for getting out of a cinch since you can distract somebody by having the civilian dance and then everybody's occupied with that person while you make your escape. Finally, forget is used to make people forget they saw you, which is handy if you get caught holobobbing someone or when you need to sneak past a majestic agent. The missions are a nice balance of action and stealth. Some require you to sneak around and gather clues, while others involve causing destruction or eliminating targets. It's nothing groundbreaking, and at times, the mission design does show its age, but it's enjoyable. However, the stealth is extremely basic. To stay disguised, you need to read minds. But if there's a majestic agent, you need to stay out of his radius, or he'll see through your disguise. In the original, when you got close to a majestic agent, the hollow bob would start to glow red before disappearing if you got too close. But in the remake, they give you a little radius on the map to indicate how close you are to a majestic agent. If your disguise is about to be blown, you can do one of two things. You can hypnotize the agent to make him dance, or you can use forget to make him forget momentarily. That way you can waltz, waltz right by him and continue on. In the original, to get by majestic agents, my go-to method was you uh, use PK and just you know tap triangle to make them uh, fall over. Then you can just walk on by. Because when they're falling over and on the ground, uh, you don't have to worry about the hollow bob disabling. You also have to keep a lookout for EMP mines. In the original, those just disabled Crypto's weapons momentarily. But in the remake, not only do they disable Crypto's weapons, but they will disable his holobob if he gets close to them. You can easily just cause it to explode using Crypto's mail abilities, or throw it off to the side, or just shoot it to get rid of it. Going back to the missions, one thing I will applaud developer Black Forest Games for doing is going out of its way to resurrect a mission cut from the original game. That's right, there's a brand new mission, shall we say, created specifically for this remake. It's called The Wrong Stuff, and this mission acts as the gap between missions 13 and 14 and shows Crypto sabotaging the military's attempt to build their own saucer. Because for fans of the original, if you remember in the opening cutscene to the mission, Duck and cover, it shows the military testing out a saucer it's been building, but then it malfunctions and collapses to the ground. Well, in this mission, the wrong stuff, you get to find out how it happened, and needless to say, it took a little fear on meddling to make it not work. The mission itself is fun and makes great use of the holobob as you sneakily assassinate the researchers in clever ways, like causing a grill to explode or luring one scientist into a minefield. The majority of missions now feature optional objectives to complete. Some are simple, while others are a bit obtuse, like destroying a building by using a majestic agent in the mission South by Southwest. Of course, this is a game about destroying humans. The game does not disappoint in that area. Crypto has the Zapmag, the Disintegrator Ray, the Ion Detonator, and the Anal Probe. The Zapmag shoots beams of electricity which zap its targets. The disintegrator ray fires hot plasma balls which reduce humans to ash. The ion detonator is a grenade launcher that launches ion bombs that can be detonated or thrown into something before being detonated afterwards. Then there's the anal probe. To use this gun, you hold the trigger, and when the reticule glows white, you release it, causing a probe to fly out and penetrate the butt of some poor sod. 
As they run around clutching their butt cheeks, the probe rips their brain right through their butt. I'm not joking. Even more amusing, you can actually use the anal probe on inanimate objects like turrets and vehicles. So yeah, the anal probe <laughs> is useful in more ways than one. With Crypto's added versatility, using these guns feels great. Even better are the upgrades you can get. The upgrade system from the original has received some modifications. While there are upgrades to increase ammo capacity or damage, each gun, ability, etc. is usually capped off by a final offbeat upgrade. For example, the disintegrator ray gets a rapid fire function, while the ion detonator pulls any nearby humans and objects into its blast radius before exploding. Of course, an alien vader isn't complete without a flying saucer, and the flying saucer delivers. Instead of being fixed at one altitude like in the original, you're now able to adjust its height. Plus there are upgrades to buy for the saucers and crypto shields, whereas the original didn't have such things. This makes dealing with tougher enemies like tanks, majestic agents, or Tesla coils more manageable since the saucer and crypt are no longer glass cannons. Plus, there's now a deflector which knocks projectiles like missiles out the sky if timed right. The saucer is equipped with the Death Ray, Sonic Boom, and Quam Deconstructor. The Death Ray is self-explanatory, while Sonic Boom launches spherical objects that emit shockwaves. The Quam De Deconstructor is the BFG of the game's arsenal. When you use the Quam Deconstructor, a green spear is launched that expands out before imploding, destroying anything in its vicinity. Ammo for this weapon is hard to come by, and rightfully so. Overall, the combat is fantastic. There's a lot of depth to it you might not pick up on at first glance. The added versatility of Crypto encourages players to experiment and get creative with destroying civilization. His jetpack and skate options let him get around on foot with ease. That's another thing too. In the original game, Crypto just had the jetpack, which, you know, let him fly into the air briefly, but then once it ran out of juice, he just sort of puttered along. The remake fixes the jetpack, and now it's a lot more useful, but there's a new, two new mobility options added, Dash and Skate. Dash lets Crypto evade gunfire and so on and so forth, but if you hold Dash, that triggers Skate which is basically a virtual hoverboard for Crypto to ride on that allows him to get around town much quicker and faster than with something like, say, the jetpack. And when you get that thing fully upgrade, man, man is it very useful, to say the least. Terrorizing the masses will attract law enforcement and more as the alert level raises. The enemies are competent, to say the least. They have a few new tricks up their sleeve. For example, soldiers will now throw grenades and wield rocket launchers in addition to rifles. Majestic agents start with a pistol and Thompson submachine gun, but in later stages they start rocking plasma pistols and rapid firing plasma guns. They can also throw EMP grenades as well to temporarily disable Crypto's weapons. Enemies will overwhelm you with their numbers if you're not careful, so the add challenge is welcome. The original Destroy Humans was a weird mishmash of linear and open world gameplay. While you progress through the story in a linear fashion, there are parts where you are required to collect a certain amount of DNA before progressing, resulting in some unnecessary stopgaps. Plus, aside from annihilating everything, there wasn't much of a reason to explore the levels. There were challenges, but they were generic. Kill a few farmers, uh, go through these checkpoints, destroy X number of buildings. You get the idea. While the remake retains the style of linear progression with sandbox gameplay, the pacing is stronger and more focused. New weapons, abilities, and upgrades are unlocked at a reasonable pace. 
and you don't have to worry about collecting X amount of DNA before continuing the story. Mission difficulty is now rated by flame symbols, with one indicating easy while three being difficult. Disappointingly, no side missions were added, but the challenges did receive a, a tremendous improvement. Each challenge is now accompanied by a scoring system, and they are split in one of four categories. Race, Armageddon, Abduction, and Rampage. Race has you chasing after a probe, collecting DNA to maintain speed with it. Armageddon involves annihilating everything within the time limit. Abduction sees crypto gathering items for Pox study, while Rampage is about killing waves of, of a particular thing within the time limit. The higher the ranking, the more DNA you earn. The changes and refinements made to destroy humans' gameplay were for the better. It feels more satisfying than before. The missions are mostly fun, though the stealth-based ones do show their age, but at the very least, the redesigned boss fights are superb. They're frantic, challenging affairs, and are satisfying to take on. Plus, if you missed any optional objectives, there is now a replay mission option on the Mothership, which lets you go back and play them. That's another thing, too. The Mothership acts as the hub of the game. From there, you can choose an invasion site to visit, you can buy upgrades, and you can check out the in-game archives to look at concept art, uh, lore in the game's world, stuff like that. Charlotte Humans isn't terribly long either. The original game took about 4-5 to five hours to complete, but with the added content, like, new, like the new mission and the revamped challenges, the runtime has been beefed up a little bit to about 7-9 seven, seven hours within that range. Visually, the game looks great. It's quite a stark contrast to jump from the, at the time, decent PS2 visuals to this. Environments are detailed, and though, and though they are small by today's standards, they feel more lived in. You'll notice people going about their business and not just aimlessly walking or driving around. A lot of times I would just stay in disguise and walk around the levels, just to see what everyone was doing. Plus, the variety of character models is expanded, so you don't have to worry about seeing the same four or five models copied and pasted. Similar to the recent Battle for Bikini Bomb remake, the Destroyer Humans remake utilizes the original audio recordings with some new lines sprinkled in throughout. However, the quality of the original voice recordings seemed off. They have a weird echoey distortion to them, likely the result of some filter slash modulation applied to them during post-production. By comparison, the new dialogue sounds crisp and clear. And hearing Richard Horvitz and Grant Albrecht return to these roles all these years later has me hopeful they decide to continue the series with a full-fledged new game somewhere down the line. I mentioned earlier you need to read minds to keep the holobops guys up. Well, get ready to hear the same handful of thoughts repeated ad nauseum. Though the lines are amusing, I wish they had recorded more new lines for this remake. There are some, but not many. Also, I encountered a weird audio bug where the music wouldn't play when revisiting a level. But after I completed a challenge, the music would kick on. Speaking of, the music remains excellent. Gary Scheinman's compositions remain phenomenal to listen to, and he captures the spirit of music from 1950s science fiction perfectly. The alert music only heightens the pure, anarchic terror of Crypto. Destroy Humans is a fantastic remake, in case you couldn't tell. It's as funny and witty as ever, and the antics of Crypto and Pox never cease to leave a smile on my face. Yet, where it shines is in the gameplay. While the missions get the job done, the mechanics are improved and taken to the next level. It lacks the depth and complexity of modern open-world games, but where Destroy Humans excels is in its chaotic action. 
it leaves me hopeful for the series' future. While critical reception is mixed, reactions from gamers is overwhelmingly positive. And chances are we may see a remake of the second game, which in and of itself was a huge improvement over the first title. Yet, yeah, the series' future is up to THQ Nordic, but my hope is to one day see a full-fledged new entry. A remake of Destroy Humans 2 would be amazing, but it's best to not touch Big Boy Unleashed or Path of the Furon. I doubt anyone wants to see the one time Pox built a double entendre restaurant get remade, nor the time Crypto Lord Kung Fu Time Stop from the Furon. Yes, that did happen. Either way, I'm just glad the series is back. Destroy All Humans gets four anal probes, out of five. This marks the end of the first episode of The Game Slice. We hope you enjoyed it. For updates on what Revival House does next, follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And if you want more of The Game Slice, subscribe to Revival House on YouTube or follow any of the links to their podcasting accounts in the description below. And of course, if you want to check out, out more of what Matt and I do, follow our YouTube channel, Will and Matt's Excellent Podcast. And if you want to see more of what I do, Check out my website, GamerGuysReviews, at GamerGuysReviews.com. That was the first episode of the Game Slice, and remember... Don't get mad, get sadistic.